love those moments of silence. Thank you, Connie. So to begin this morning, I want to be clear. This discussion we're having this morning, this little talk, is not about the person who made the choice to step into a church and cause harm. Nor is it about the people who were affected by that. Although all of that contributes to right now. This is really about us. How we move through life and what might be hidden within us that we don't know and perhaps the people around us don't know. There was a study in April of, uh, released in April of 2014 in Nature Neuroscience magazine. Very well documented study that went on for several years. And in the course of the study, uh, animals, mice, were uh, put through intentional trauma. And the trauma was that the babies were removed from their mother and then brought back and then removed and brought back in the very early stages of life. And then the mice were raised to full grown and had babies and um, were tracked through the sperm of the father. And what they found was mothers who had babies through a different father than those that had been traumatized had babies who behaved in normal mouse ways. And those who had babies who were conceived through the fathers who were traumatized had children, pups, uh, little mouse babies, who, were, who demonstrated the same behaviors as though they had been traumatized them, themselves. Which is pretty interesting, isn't it? It's pretty interesting to consider that in science, there is evidence that would make us question if the trauma that happens in the early part of our lives might be somehow passed on to our children without any intention. So there's good indication. Lots of scientific research has been done with humans as well, and there's good indication that this is a possibility. So knowing this made me look back at my own life and consider what might have been passed down in the last 100, 150 years in my own life. So I looked back through my genealogy, and I started with my great-great-grandfather, who was born in 1838. And I looked at just where he was and what was going on in the world in 1838, and my great-grandfather was living in Illinois on the border of Illinois and, and Missouri. And one of the big occurrences during that time was what was, was termed the Mormon War. Joseph Smith had been moving the Mormon community, the Church of Latter-day Saints across the country. The beliefs of the church were very different than many other uh, Christian faiths, and the Mormon community was not well-received. And in the Mormon War, the Mormons, the governor had asked the Mormon community, had demanded that the Mormon community leave Missouri, and 18 people were massacred because they didn't leave fast enough. At the same time, the Trail of Tears was very active in our country, and the Trail of Tears was a reference to our moving 
thousands and thousands of Native Americans from their native lands down into Oklahoma. The Trail of Tears was how they moved. And in that particular year that my grandfather was born, 4,000 Cherokee Indians died on the Trail of Tears. So it's interesting for me to consider what my grandfather might have learned, my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, might have learned from those incidents about religious prejudice, about rights and wrongs between people, about whether or not um, race makes a difference. Interesting what ideas he might have picked up in the early years of his life, because in 1838, we were still publishing newspapers, and this was happening right around him, right in the area that he lived in. So there was probably a lot of conversation if he wasn't directly exposed himself. And I wonder what he might have passed down to my great-grandfather, who was born in 1860. And in 1860, he, he came to this planet with some ideas. And one year after his birth, we entered a civil war. In 1861, the Civil War began in our country, and my great-grandfather was living in Missouri. Now, it's interesting to me that we study the Civil War in history, and we think of it as history. We don't necessarily think of it as our history. That within 100 years or so of our lifetimes, our ancestors were in the middle of the Civil War in our country. This isn't eons ago. It's very recent in comparison to what other countries decide their history is. This is very recent. So my great-grandfather was was born, and the Civil War started, and he was in the state of Missouri. And Missouri was a border state, a border territory area, where some of the people fought for the North and some of the people fought for the South. And so you didn't know who you could trust. You had to be concerned about the neighbors who lived around you and which side they were on. And I wonder what that might have taught my great-grandfather about trusting in the people he thought he knew, about trusting his neighbors and those people who were close to him. And I wonder what he might have experienced in the way of trauma around that that he might have passed down to my grandfather. My grandfather was born in 1895, also there in Missouri, and he ended up traveling up to Washington State. But when he was born, it was called, we called it the Gilded Age. There was a lot happening in our country when he was born. Um, It was the birth time of unions in our country, and there were big strikes around the railroad and being able to get supplies back and forth. Strikes that had to do with how our labor is managed. The unions were fighting for eight-hour days at a time when, when people were expected to work around the clock. And they were fighting for child labor laws to protect our children so that they wouldn't have to work long hours or at an early age. And I wonder what stories he might have heard about that that made it questionable what his role as a child was and what it would be like to work out in the world, whether it would be a safe place or not. And 
when he was born, he, he was born on the cusp of World War I, which started in 1914, at a time when the message was that we were in great danger and that we were going to have to protect ourselves and the world. And I wonder, I just wonder what ideas he took on about people from other lands and whether it was safe to go out into the world and learn about other people. I wonder what he passed on to my father, who was born in 1934. In 1933, the Nazis took over Germany. And in 1933, we saw our very first concentration camps and the Holocaust was beginning a year before my dad was born. My dad was born in the middle of the Great Depression. And I wonder what he might have learned in his very formative years about lack, about the world not having enough, and about learning how to make do. I wonder what he learned about the measure of cruelty that is possible in other human beings, and again, specifically human beings outside of our country. By the time he was five years old, we were in World War II. And I wonder what he might have learned, how that experience might have reinforced a previous belief passed on to him that the world wasn't a safe place, that the people of other countries were not safe to be around it was also in 1949 that the play South Pacific was released on Broadway. And it was a time, the reason that this particular song was so critical to the acceptability of the movie was because it came out of a part of the play that addressed interracial relationship. Racism was huge in this country at that time. And interracial relationship was a big topic. And I wonder how my father was influenced by that. I know that he was influenced enough to go into the military. And the military was one of the first areas that we desegregated. So my father spent many years before I was born working with people of different races. And he, he went to Korea and fought in Korea prior to my birth. And um, I remember some of the little things he picked up. He traveled through Spain. And when we grew up as children, we were not allowed to chew chewing gum because Spanish people apparently at that time did not like chewing gum because of the way Americans chew it. And so it was a big deal in Spain not to, not for Americans not to, to have chewing gum. Uh, it was you know, a, a way that Americans were judged. And so we grew up in a household where that wasn't allowed. I can remember, I was born in 1961, and a lot was happening in our world at that time. A lot was going on in our world in the early 60s. We were making big changes, and I wonder how my father's teachings affected me when I was young, because I grew up in the time of peace, love, and rock and roll. My earliest influences were damn hippies. <laughs> you know, that was my father's impression. And 
I can remember things that happened in my life. I, I in, very specifically remember a conversation that my parents had with me when I was an, a young teenager and dating a young man who was black. And my father and mother sat me down in the living room and had a conversation with me, and it wasn't about this being a wrong choice. It was about me putting the young man in danger, that he might be caused harm because of the choice I was making. And I know that was very impacting. I remember it. I remember that my dad went to Vietnam and that it was the first time that, and of course I didn't know it was the first time, but it was the first time we could cover a war on television. And I, can, I was in first grade when my dad went to Vietnam and I can remember watching TV, afraid that if I didn't watch the news, I would, my dad would show up on the news and I would miss him. And afraid that if I watched it, I would see my dad dead. And I was seven years old. A little traumatizing. Okay. I wonder how much of that has been passed down to my children. We have been involved in war for almost the totality of my lifetime. I wonder how that has affected my children. What are we teaching our kids today? What do they see without us intentionally teaching them? I can tell you what's up for my 13-year-old. I can tell you that he doesn't trust the police. And when I was growing up, we did, didn't we? My mom said, if you're lost somewhere, go find a policeman. They will help you that my child is afraid of the police is devastating for me. I can tell you that he doesn't believe government is a good idea. And can you, can you blame him? If you look, we're about to go into another political race, aren't we? What will our children see? Will they see the best of us? No. Our children are seeing something different, and our children today are exposed in an all-new way. When I was growing up, my children, my parents could monitor what I was watching, and they could monitor who I was talking to because the phone was connected to the wall in the dining room. <laughs> and my, I stretched that cord as far as I could till my parents would yell at me because the spirals were all stretched out. But there was no such thing as having a conversation your parents didn't know about, not at home anyway, because I was connected. Now our children can talk to whoever they want because they have access to the world in their pocket. They can see many messages that we don't even give them. And we don't have the opportunity in many cases to monitor those messages and temper them. So if what was if what was expressed in the article, in the research done, is true, then through the bloodlines of my forefathers, I have been um, given many biological messages about racism and bigotry and fear and judgment. And they have come down through me, probably without much intention. And yet they exist. This could be true for every one of us in this room. And it matters. It matters that we consider 
where our ancestors came from and what traumas they went through and how they may have passed that through our bloodlines down to us. It matters that we consider this and, and that we understand we have the responsibility because we have the knowledge and the wisdom. We have the responsibility to look at it and to begin correcting the process. So the first way that we correct the process is to correct our own traumas, isn't it? To consider what, what we may have already passed to our children and to have conversations with them about it. If we look around this room, this room is full of very wise people. And one of the difficulties in our society is that our American traditional Western society doesn't put a lot of value on the wisdom keepers, on those who have lived long enough to share their wisdom. And we are becoming them if we are not already. The good news is we've lived through many of those things that were just expressed. We've lived through them and we've learned from them and our faith and hope is not unwarranted. Our faith and hope in life is very based in what we have seen the world overcome. And we have a message for those children that are around us. We have a message of hope. We have a message of love. We have a message of faith, of forgiveness. We have a great deal to share that can help them move into their parenthood without the trauma we might carry. We have the ability to express to our children that if we used our, our media, which is our primary storytelling method, isn't it? This is a lot about the story we tell. Our media is our storytelling method, but it's not the only one available. We still have this. We still have the ability to speak. We still have the ability to require our children to put down the electronic influence and be influenced by us. We have the ability to tell stories about what has become from what originally looked tragic and horrifying and what we learned and why we believe the world can move on in a good and powerful and transformative way. So how will we tell our stories? This that's happening in our world today, this trauma, this tragedy, is heart-wrenching. What will come of it? Will we reinforce the story of the violent nature of humankind? Or will we watch what emerges? We've already seen the videotape of the statements of forgiveness that were given by the families, which were just made me cry. Tearfully powerful. If you haven't seen them, very easy to access them online. But families spoke to the young men of their, their words of forgiveness. And if they can forgive, then certainly we must find that place. So I want to ask you, how many of you have held a newborn baby? How many of you have held more than one? Okay. 
So how many of you have held one and said, oh my God, this child is destined for something awful? (laughs) Right. It doesn't happen, does it? I've been blessed to be at more than a dozen births. And I have held those babies fresh out of the oven while they're still warm. (laughs) And you know what? They are angels. When you look in your life, you see the, when you look in their eyes, you see the wisdom of the universe. Every single human being, every single being in my mind was born like that. And whatever happened between that young man's birth and his 21st year influenced who he is. Whatever might have been passed, his parents may have said nothing, done nothing, but he may be carrying a signature that comes from civil war times, from times beyond that, just like the rest of us. We have no idea what truly comes through our bloodline and what it would take to turn any one of us in this room as violent as that. We have no idea what kind of fear we would have to feel to lose what we consider our humanity, our dignity, our sense of right and wrong, to be pushed off balance. Something happened. Probably many somethings happened. And yet at the core of that young man is the same angelic heart that each of us touched in our meditation today. And that is very hard to accept at this moment, isn't it? Because it's much easier to make him a monster. If we make him a monster, he's different from us. But what is important is to recognize us. What is important in changing the world is seeing who we are at the core and choosing what story we will tell the children. What is important about this story is the forgiveness that was offered by the families and that we have the ability to express What is important is a community of people coming together in love. What is is important is a world that is responding with compassion. These are the stories that we tell our children. This is how we move forward. And each of us has a special gift to offer in that regard. And so I want to move you through an exercise that you can do any time, this could be done during 9-11, this could be done because of any kind of attack, it can be done when you have a personal trauma. Something happens that touches your life even more closely. So I want you to look in the seat back pockets in front of you and you should find a piece of paper and a pen. And you may need to share those. Share at least the pens, sometimes there aren't quite enough. But I want you to get them out. And set everything else down 
and just let the paper and pen rest in your lap for a minute. And what I want to invite you to do is I want to invite you, everybody got one? I know we're still working over here. I want to invite you to close your eyes. There we go. Go ahead and close your eyes. And we'll write in a moment. Take a nice deep breath in. And release. And I want you to consider that you are the wisdom keepers, no matter what age you are or what your life experience is. That you are holding wisdom that needs to be shared in the world. And there is one thing that you, if someone said, what have you learned? What is the most important thing you've learned in life? There is one thing that is incredibly significant that you have learned. I want you to not work too hard, but to let it come to you in one word. And that word could be compassion or love or forgiveness or patience or endurance. It could be one of many things. It could be faith. It could be strength. It could be quiet. What is the one Word that first comes to your mind, trust that word and write it down. Now that one thing is how you change the world. That one thing that you know you've learned in this lifetime is your message to take out. And how you tell every story of everything that happens in your life from here forward is colored by that word. Because your job is to write that word into your story. How will you write forgiveness into this story? How will you write love into this story? How will you write compassion, patience, strength and endurance, humanity, dignity, loyalty, trust, faith, hope? How will you write your one word into the telling of the story of those things that have been difficult in your life. Because how you tell your story affects the children. And how you tell your story to other adults affects the children because they are listening. They are hearing it. They are exposed to the not just the words you say, but the feeling that you put out. What will you do as you move forward? Perhaps this story will, this word will change for you over time. But how you tell and place the story of what has occurred in your lifetime is shaping the trauma you feel in your own body. And it's shaping the trauma that your child or your grandchild or your neighbor's child or your nephew or your niece or your student 
is feeling in their body and what they're feeling in their body they will pass to their children. So tell your stories in a way that doesn't traumatize. Be willing to change the story. And if you don't have children in your immediate area and you feel like you don't know how you're going to get your story out, in June, we start building towards our fall youth program here. In July, we'll start looking for wisdom keepers who can guide our youth of unity, who can teach and share and tell the stories of how life is safe and beautiful and how it would take more time than we have to daily show on the news all the good and loving acts that happen on the planet. How many more good and loving acts there are than those that are traumatic and how much hope we can have for our future. We'll be looking for you. So start thinking now if you are a person who would like to be part of shaping that. Start watching where the children are in your life. Because when you're ready to tell a story they need, they will show up. I honor the fathers in this room. And I honor the fathering that is done by men and women alike. Fathering is different. Mothers are expected to be soft and gentle and nurturing. Fathers are expected to be strong and powerful and make firm boundaries. Yes? Sometimes the mothers are the fathers and the fathers are the mothers, right? Today we honor the Father Spirit and I would like to close with a prayer for fathers. This is called the Father's Day Prayer by Kirk Lodeman. Let us praise those fathers who have striven to balance the demands of work, marriage, and children with an honest awareness of both joy and sacrifice. Let us praise those fathers who, lacking a good model for a father, have worked to become a good father. Let us praise those fathers who, by their own account, were not always there for their children, but who continue to offer those children, now grown, their love and support. Let us pray for those fathers who have been wounded by the neglect and hostility of their children. Let us praise those fathers who, despite divorce, have remained in their children's lives. Let us praise those fathers whose children are adopted and whose love and support has offered healing. Let us praise those fathers who, as stepfathers, freely choose the obligation of fatherhood and earn their stepchildren's love and respect. Let us praise those fathers who have lost a child to death and continue to hold that child in their heart. Let us praise those men who have no children but cherish the next generation as if it was their own. Let us praise those men who have fathered us in their role as mentors and guides. Let us praise those men who are about to become fathers. May they openly delight in their children. 
and let us praise those fathers who have died, but live on in our memory and whose love continues to nurture us. We're going to sing a little song.